0: Welcome to Coping with COVID-19, this editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine a Practical Dermatology Magazine is made possible with advertising from CareCredit. This is Episode 7, Optimizing the Teleconsult for Skin Concerns, featuring Drs. Carrie Kovarik, Ivy Lee, and Arit Markowitz. I'm looking forward to chatting about some of the, the experience that we've had and also some tips that we've learned along the way so that we can ensure a great experience not only for providers but also for patients as this becomes a lot more mainstream and um, this is such an exciting opportunity I think for our healthcare system in general.
1: So um, it, it seems like both of you have uh, quite a bit of experience with teledermatology, I will candidly say, for me, this is relatively new. Um, I wanted to start offering it to my patients, uh, obviously in the current pandemic, because I wasn't able to see my patients in person. Um, And I agree that, you know, there are definitely uh, wonderful aspects to being able to deliver care to them. I've applied for multiple emergency licenses uh, in various states because many of my patients from New York are now kind of in different areas um, trying to seek uh, care. And I'm wondering, you know, some of the limitations that I've noticed uh, starting out with teledermatology Is uh, especially you know the majority of my practice is managing high risk skin cancer patients. um, Is the diagnostic hurdles, and I'm curious, um, what are some of the tips that you can suggest? And then I'll I'll of course share um, some of the work that I've been trying to implement uh, as well with my patients.
2: Sure. So. We've been working with the American Academy of Dermatology to try and get some good patient information out there, patient tips, because not only is this new for providers, but it's new for a lot of patients. Um, For example, my mother, who's not young, she wouldn't want me to say her age on this this uh, venue, but um, had a, a telemedicine consult with her doctor and had trouble finding where she was supposed to connect. And so it's important to have some tips for patients so they understand the whole process. So we've come out with a tip sheet for patients telling them it's important to contact their Insurance carriers so that they know if it's covered. We sort of know what Medicare does, but private payers are a little bit all over the all over the place. It's important for them to know what type of telemedicine their provider is going to be offering. So is it live? Is there gonna be a link sent to them that they're supposed to press? Are they supposed to send photos through some kind of portal or email? Are they gonna receive a phone call And so just knowing that information is really important for preparation and then some patients are expected to send photos so maybe sending them some tips on what they're supposed to do with that letting them know when the televisit comes they need to have all of their history ready some of this tele telehealth is offered through a health system and we can look into their patient records but not all of it is that sophisticated yet. So being prepared is really important. And I think if the patients and the providers come to the visit more prepared, it's a little bit better of an experience.
0: I agree. And I think from my experience, we see I have a lot of elderly patients in my practice, um, we realize realized that in this time of uncertainty and heightened anxiety for everyone, introducing something new can be really stressful for folks. So we try to make it as simple as possible. And so what we've done and we offer store and forward, so emailed photos, but also live interactive video conferencing is we've created patient little videos and links that we include in our link for the telehealth visit where it is a one minute video of, how do you set up Zoom on your smartphone or your laptop? What should you expect? And this includes what are your potential out-of-pocket costs, what Telederm does well, and what Telederm does not do so well. So this is not a forum for total body skin exams in my practice. And how can you best prepare for it? Make sure your in a well-lit room where there, the audio is clear, where there's no distractions, where, there's, where the color contrast is um, easily appreciable. So we usually don't allow virtual backgrounds. Those don't help in this case. And. Um, Can you come prepared, like Carrie said, with a list of questions that we can then effectively address and make sure we answer during that visit? Can you bring out all the products that you've tried? And I think this is also then a benefit of telehealth visits because I get a glimpse into what their home life is like and what products they're actually using. So I get a lot of sometimes richer information from telehealth visits. But I also wanna make sure I'm getting the same quality of information as I would in person. And so we have put together these little one minute videos on how do you prepare for a video conference? How do you prepare for a store and forward visit that our patients can easily access on safe YouTube? And I think that's been really helpful in terms of minimizing questions and also making sure that the, the efficiency in our daily workflow is much um it's easier to obtain just to prepare the patients a little more.
1: So I wanna, I wanna speak to um, the skin exam. I agree with you that it's incredibly challenging and the majority of my patients uh, being skin cancer patients and high risk, um, I'm trying to provide them with a uh, modified skin exam. Videos in this short period of time <laughs> Um, and sent them to patients. I've utilized, I'm gonna gonna do like a little show and tell, but I've had them purchase for the price of probably a little more than a copay um, home dermoscopy tools. Um, I've also, and I don't know if you guys are familiar, one of the companies um, also provides uh, tape stripping for the patients at home. So what I've been doing in terms of guiding them, because I agree with you that often they are a little bit nervous um, trying something new. If they're Medicare patients, fortunately, the HIPAA compliant uh, regulations have pretty much been lifted as has state lines. Um, So we provide them, as you mentioned, if they don't have a smartphone, we'll often use uh, a zoom uh, if it's a patient that's younger than 65, but they also have some limitations in adding to the Mount Sinai health system, um, MyChart, which is what we have available. Uh, we'll even do HIPAA-compliant app platforms like Google Meetings. Um, and we'll, what I've been doing is preparing them before the visit to do some of the storm forward uh, and then following up live. So this way we can manage a lot of the, you know, obviously, as you know, the NCCN guidelines came out uh, stating that we sh- we're not supposed to be managing non-melanoma skin cancers. And there are even limitations with our melanomas. Um, so I've been treating them with the topical therapies that we're all very familiar with, um, with the utilization of home devices, because... I'm not as comfortable with uh, the virtual visit without having some of the imaging done. Um, I try to guide them into having backlighting, like daytime visits with some of the windows behind um, with proper lighting, making sure that the lighting is behind them as opposed to in front of them. they do get really confused, I find, my patient population, with even how to properly hold a phone, for example, for a FaceTime visit. So I agree with you that giving them um, some guidance beforehand on hold the phone, this is how you place a device on your phone if you're trying to take pictures. Here's how the kind of quality of picture we're looking for. Um, so I try to combine it. I, I, I found that the storm forward prior to a virtual visit seems to be a nice combination if I'm doing those modified skin exams. And now more than ever, it has to be a partnership with the patient. I ask them to stand in front of a full-length mirror, um, to look for the dark new spots or anything that's crusting, not healing, or anything that's atypical appearing, it, and so that we have all the spots lined up before the visit. Um, And and that's sort of what I've been trying to utilize uh, with my high-risk patients. Um, Any other thoughts or any
2: other suggestions that
1: that you're working with in in that population or?
2: um, I have a question for you. Um, We just looked at our our numbers because I'm a dermatopathologist. And I think this is a concern. um, I looked at them in collaboration with a a media interview, because the concern is, where have all the fill-in-the-blank, high-risk medical concerns gone? Melanoma, heart attacks, strokes, and our numbers in DermPath for melanomas have gone to zero some weeks in basic melanoma. And so the concern is the patients are waiting for this to blow over. The patients are intimidated by telemedicine. Although they do good skin checks, some of them, we all know that we, we catch things in the full body skin check in the office. As Ivy mentioned, this isn't for a full body skin um, check or Dr. Lee, um, you know, it's for a focused exam, right? And so, what can we do and what can you do as a specialist um, to better capture these things and what's your threshold for um, biopsies? So, so that's where the tools have been really
1: helpful because my patients have been trying to push out uh, their skin, skin exams visits. And as you know, the estimates for 2020 is basically one patient's going to die every hour, every day from melanoma. And that's in a regular, everybody coming in for their skin exam reality. So I assume that number has to be dramatically higher. So what I've been doing is reaching out actually pretty aggressively to that high risk population group, explaining to them, walking them through, this is what a modified exam looks like. Um, These are the things that I want you to look for the same things that I would be looking for clinically. So I say, you see a new dark spot, you see a brown spot, it's starting to look atypical, or you're seeing something that's crusting, um, that's pink, that's scaly, that's not wanting to heal. I I want you to be circling those spots. And then let's, and if they're anxious about purchasing a scope, some are, although, you know, if you look at a lot of the states and a lot of the insurance carriers have now waived the copays. So, if they're getting something that's basically the cost of a copay, I try to remind them of that. But yes. there are certainly some financial constraints for patients. So, sometimes we'll have the telehealth visit before they even committed to purchasing a soap. And at least I'm trying to look at them together clinically. And right. then if I feel like there's a high risk, then we talk about you know what are the benefits to perhaps getting a home scope. Majority are okay with doing it, some are not. If it does look like a high risk lesion or if I'm just not sure, then the second question is, am I sending them in for a biopsy of something I'm not sure of? And that's where I'll suddenly go and you know this is something they can get at home now, the DermTech tape strip. So at least if the tape strip is coming back positive or it's high risk, then I know that you know we have more behind sending them in to have this excisionally biopsy because now we have a real reason to believe that this could be melanoma. And I've had a few of those cases. Um, it is more helpful if they allow me to also add the dermoscopy because it'll probably you know help in in dictating the diagnosis. But when the patients see that they actually have tools at home that they can utilize, and I walk them through, here are the different things that we can do for you, here's the risk with melanoma, here are the reasons why we don't want to push out your visit, but at the same time we want to keep you home and safe, then they realize that it's probably a good idea to at least get looked at so that we have a chance of not missing the things that could end up with mortality. But if we're, if we're not, you know, if we're telling them, I can't do an exam, I'm not comfortable, you know, the lighting is not good, and I'm trying to walk them through all of those um, hurdles, and you need to buy a scope before they even have the visit, then, yeah. then I've, I found that they're running away. Mm-hmm. So it's more, let's have it together, let's talk through it, Let's look at things together. And then if we can't figure it out, let's talk about what's available to you so that we can get you the proper care. Because I agree with you, the last thing I want is for them to be going in to have a biopsy of a junctional nevus right now. Yeah. But if I have these tools, I'm less likely to send them in with something benign, And I'm also less likely to miss the malignancy. So that's that's kind of what I'm trying to utilize in seeing the patients so that at least they realize that they can't wait 3 months or maybe it's 6 months like you don't really know you know especially with that older population that's high risk like we're not really sure when they're going to be able to come in and get their exams and then we also know that melanoma is the number one cancer in patients ages 25 to 29 so we don't want to miss the millennials either. So all of these individuals have to feel some sort of, you know, empowerment. And and I think part of it too is if you're offering a televisit. visit let's say they are coming in complaining of acne, we can't forget to mention to them, by the way, have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Have you noticed something unusual? Oh, you haven't looked? Please look. And if you see something, let's set up a follow-up visit. So all of these are really the things that are getting them in. And I will say, I'm seeing probably close to 60% of what I normally see when I'm practicing in person. And I think a lot of that is the outreach and reminding them that there are things that they can do that, God forbid, they have a basal, we can manage with some of the topical immunomodulators. Maybe we can't get rid of it completely, we can slow it down. So rather than say to them, wait 12 weeks or wait six months, those are the guidelines. I'm telling them, let's start managing it from home. Let's deal with what we have to deal with. And then later you'll come in with something smaller, not something that's growing. So that's what I've been sort of trying to push out because it's very stressful as someone who's managing mostly skin cancer patients to suddenly be pushed to
2: a platform, right?
0: So,
1: Dr.
2: Lee, Dr. Lee, yeah. I'd be curious to know what you do if you see um, something, either a cancer that's concerning or a pigmented lesion that's concerning that you think needs a biopsy. Do you have a protocol in place?
0: So, like Dr. Markowitz was was commenting on, oftentimes we use a hybrid of the storm and forward and live interactive. We found that that to be offering higher quality images for lesions of concern. I think Live Interactive has its benefits of showing distribution, of answering in real time patients' questions. But for morphology, I really get much more information and higher quality images through store and forward. So like Dr. Markowitz, we often get store and forward photos first, then I review it in addition to the questions, the main questions from the patients, and then review that in synchronous video conferencing. And I think as these restrictions have been relaxed during this pandemic, we've still been focusing a lot on maintaining professionalism and also maintaining or strengthening that trust with our patients. And I think Dr. Markwitz did a wonderful job talking about, we're gonna get through this together, we're gonna to make the most of the tools that we have, and we wanna make sure that we're not compromising quality in terms of our diagnosis, in terms of treatment plan. And I think what the formality of telehealth does offer is it does remind me to be very clear in communicating with patients addressing each of their questions, and also communicating, please update me or let's touch base again in the next week or in two weeks so that we can make sure that this is resolved or do I need a right diagnosis or the right treatment plan. So I think to be very deliberate in terms of communication um, has been one of the benefits of all of this. And also to figure out Who else in your care team should I notify so that we're all on the same page um, as we're all operating kind of in this virtual space right now?
2: Have you had patients that have needed biopsies and what types of patients have those been?
0: Yeah, uh, we have had patients come um, with lesions of concern that we identify as either a melanoma, and they may end up being either a melanoma or a pigmented basal cell. So we do bring folks in, in my practice, for um, biopsies and what we consider essential procedures. Um, my office is operating on a very limited basis where we are open for one to two hours each work day, and those are really to fit in those patients where either the telehealth uh, leads to a procedure or an in-person visit, and The goal of that is really to offload our local urgent cares and emergency rooms so they don't have to deal with a dermatology condition that we can easily take care of. Um, So we're not seeing the same volume as we had before, but we're kind of maintaining access so that at least they're not pursuing um, more acute care in settings where the resources are a lot more strapped.
2: That's great, and the AAD also has a nice um, clinic preparedness checklist um, on their COVID website that talks about a workflow of how to deal with patients that may need to come into the office, and they talk about um, the day before, perhaps reaching out to the patient and asking if they have any symptoms of uh, COVID-19, shortness of breath or fever, and if they do, perhaps, delaying that, that visit. Um, and then again, when they check in, asking them those same questions. And if they say yes, you need to put them in a room right away, um, put a mask on the patient, um, you should be wearing a mask as well. And those, those PPE um, recommendations have been very fluid over the last month. <laughs> I live in New Jersey and we now have to wear a mask to the grocery store and everywhere. Um, everybody has to wear a face covering because we are now number two in the country for uh, coronavirus. So um, it's very fluid. And that's what the recommendation is um, now. And so, um, of course, we're just like you said, trying to limit those biopsies and visits to just when you're really worried about um, someone on telemedicine. And I think that's a little bit different than when we do telemedicine ordinarily uh, in all the telemedicine studies it's about 20 25 percent of patients we recommend for an in-person visit whether it's because it's complicated or you want a biopsy but right now it's just bare bones coming in and like dr. Markowitz said she's doing everything in her power to manage these patients remotely and so we're just in we're in new territory and and um, you know, we're trying to deliver quality care as best as we can in these circumstances. And I think it's important to tell the patient and be very transparent about what we're doing. Say, this is what we're doing. We're doing the best that we can, whether you're doing storm and forward or um, live or a telephone visit, that what the limitations are of what we're doing. You know, this isn't what we always do. It may not be, um, the best. I may be doing my telemedicine visit on FaceTime right now, but this is how we can deliver care to you and you can send the patient and, um, you know, really just an open conversation. I think we mentioned communication earlier is just really key um, to providing good care. And I
0: think the silver lining of this is we'll find what scenarios telemedicine works really well at and where the patients are really excited and and value the convenience. Mm-hmm. And then I also think we'll see scenarios where we think that in-person is the only way to do things. So I don't think that um, telemedicine is always something where this is all that we've got and we'll make the most of it. I think it offers a lot of benefits and it works really well in many things. I've had a lot of my college students, even though they're back home, they're so excited about for acne follow-ups, right? (laughs) They're like, this is so much easier than having me see a new dermatologist where I go to college. Let me show you actually everything that I'm using. And I get that glimpse into their life, which um, I think offers much richer information than if they were in this kind of artificial setting of my clinic. So I think there are wonderful aspects of this, of what works really well and in what populations. And I think as we return to you know, normal, we get to redefine what that is and where telehealth can play a role and do well and serve our patients better than we have in the past. And then where we can really, and then it'll also help us appreciate then, you know, the simple experience of being in the room with our patients, which I think now seems like such a foreign luxury to us. So um, I think it's exciting to, to have our world kind of turned upside down and to kind of rethink and reframe everything in terms of dermatology of what works best with telehealth and what works with the, well with a combination of both or what works best in the office and in person so that we can you know, operate more efficiently and deliver higher quality care to our patients.
1: How are you, um, speaking of college uh, patients and being able to deliver care for them at their uh, local colleges, is that correct? Um, I, I would say one of the limitations even now I, that I'm experiencing, and I, I also live in New Jersey, but I practice in New York, and I'm currently in Miami, taking um, <laughs> care of my mom, so there's, you know, and, uh, and I'm finding that a lot of my patients are kind of doing the same kind of relocating, like, I have a lot of patients who are stuck down here in Florida um, and then, of course, there are the patients that are in New Jersey and can't travel to New York to to have a telederm visit and so forth. And so I went through all of the state guidelines to see, and I and a lot of these guidelines, what I'm realizing are, are you know, that because they're in a state of emergency, you're allowed to see them. I'm wondering, though, you know, obviously hopefully once we're no longer in a state of emergency, I, I, I wonder if we're still going to be able to see them, for example, in college, uh, in a telederm visit, because for New Jersey, for example, I had to apply for an emergency license in yeah, order <laughs> to see them, and then that license disappears um, once, fortunately, the state of emergency gets lifted. Um, for Florida, they're allowing it till about April 14th, and then I had to apply for A telederm license and it's not an emergency license. Um, I had a patient in Massachusetts. They also, I had to apply for an emergency license. They got back to me in like 48 hours. I mean, it's really impressive what some of the states are allowing, but I had somebody reach out to me from, I want to say, Chicago, and I couldn't give them care there. So even with the current state of emergency, so I I imagine once all of this is kind of lifted, I, I think within our state, you know, for our older patients, let's say don't want to come in and they want us to look at acne and things like that, but I'm not so sure um, the crossing the state uh, barriers, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about. It. I think it would be interesting to investigate um, applying, I guess, for in, uh in those states. I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts about that or...
2: Yeah, it's complicated. So one good um, thing is for right now, the AAD is keeping a list of all the state requirements now in one like document so people can go on and see what the restrictions are. One thing that we do advocate for is sort of regional telemedicine. And the reason is, is because you need to sort of know about your patient's location of care. So you need to know about their local referral structures, their local pharmacies, where to send them if they need to go to the next layer of care. And that's really important, um, especially in the context of larger teledermatology corporations who get licenses in every state and end up taking care of patients far away and have no idea where to send a patient if they have a worrisome lesion of melanoma They have no idea what, where to send them. And so just getting a a license for the whole country isn't very reasonable, but perhaps like I live in Philadelphia or I work in Philadelphia, a license for the tri-state area is helpful. And so right now we have this interstate licensure compact where it makes it easier to get telemedicine licenses in neighboring states. And that's sort of what they've been doing. It's not ideal, but it's sort of a to eliminate that 50 state telemedicine license? And Ivy probably has something, or Dr. Lee, you have something to add.
0: Well, I think Carrie touched upon, we've been advocating for a more streamlined licensing process and it'll be interesting to see actually what will occur after all of this is over, right? Will we have the multi-state licensure compact actually be enacted? Will it be something where we have the regional licensing? I don't think it will be as cumbersome as it has been in the past, as telehealth is more widely adopted. but what it will look like, it's so hard to predict, and it is evolving so quickly. Um, I checked the Center for Connected Health Policies website on the different state regulations, and a lot of the licensing restrictions have been lifted, at least for the Medicare population. That said, state regulations still apply, and as you alluded to, Dr. Markowitz, every state is different. Um, the other thing
1: I noticed, and I don't know if you guys are managing any Medicaid patients, um, but I oversee a clinic uh, once a week, actually, in what looks like now COVID Central in Queens, um, at Elmhurst and Queens General. Uh, and of course, I don't want those patients to go in uh, for dermatology care. And a lot of them tend to have more aggressive uh, dermatologic needs. So it is, it's a real balancing act. Um, and I know that when I recently looked up, uh, the new New York state guidelines, for example, for the Medicaid patients where many of them are more limited, it, they, they don't have an iPhone, so you can't have a FaceTime call. Um, and you know, but you can have a WhatsApp call, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but WhatsApp is not HIPAA compliant, but oh, in New York is. It is HIPAA? I, I didn't well, it's
2: know. Not necessarily HIPAA, but it's it's one of the most secure uh-huh. messaging platforms, yes. yes. Here.
1: Well, that's good to know. But <laughs> I, I started to do, because a lot of the patients um, have WhatsApp, mm-hmm. um, so we were able to do the video visits uh, with WhatsApp when I read the New York guidelines stating that if you cannot use a HIPAA-compliant platform for Medicaid patients, you uh-huh. can go ahead and use something that is not as you know like in an emergency situation so that's good yeah yeah so knowing those guidelines and being able to manage those patients in a way that they're comfortable with as opposed to of course the medicare patients who are so much like in my population yeah comfortable with like zoom uh some are comfortable with facetime but good luck getting them onto the health system app forget it Um, so knowing what your current state, and then if you're managing now a patient in another state, what are their guidelines? It's very difficult.
2: (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. But they have been much more relaxed. I agree, uh, recently. So there's definitely more wiggle room now, which is good to care for these patients at home because we're not sending those patients in, especially in those
2: areas. Oh, sorry. We use WhatsApp for global health telemedicine because of its extreme security. So it's not recognized as HIPAA compliant, but it's got very good um, security standards.
1: That's good to know because we're yeah. using it for the New York Medicaid patient. There you go. Can't, <laughs> it's like a Google meeting or... Like yeah. Andy. Okay, what about WhatsApp? So that's really comforting to know. And how does that work with the global um, uh, tele-services? Like you're able, because I've had some requests for international patients, especially with um, concerning, you know, nail pigmentation on a pediatric patient and things like that. And I wasn't sure what I'm allowed or not allowed to do. So I just provided my consultation for the doctor I'm a little nervous about seeing the patient um, globally.
2: Um, That's a sticky issue. There's really no set guidelines for global telemedicine. The reason why we use WhatsApp is because for scaling telemedicine, it's important to use what the patient and the doctors are comfortable with so that it's sustainable and you don't have to bring new technology in, which we've learned over decades. And finally, there's a, an app that's secure, you know, reasonably secure that patients will use and can send photos. And for example, in Botswana, we, we help run the dermatology service there. And finally, we have a mechanism to have a patient follow-up and patients send photos when, you know, we're giving them, for example, this will be relevant, chloroquine for their severe lupus uh, problems. And we can't get labs for you know, six months and we can keep tabs on the patients very, very well, instead of just sending them to their village, we can actually follow up with them. I think going forward, we'll have now, you know, every physician, every patient, and every patient isn't gonna wanna do telemedicine going forward, but I think we'll have a good number of them that will want to, and we have now coders in our system that know how to code for it. You know, we'll have a whole contingency of, of people who will want this to continue and hopefully we'll have payers that will want to continue it to some extent and we'll build it into our workflows in our offices in a quality way. Um, we've been encouraging people that if you can transition to a HIPAA compliant platform to do it when you can and to build this in your, in your workflow in a smart way um, to, to make it uh, as efficient for you as possible now that you have some telemedicine skills. I
1: would also. I that's oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, just uh, along the lines of coding. Um, the other regulations that I've seen uh, is that many states have joined now the new parity parity laws, uh, for example, New York uh, and New Jersey, I believe, where the coding is like a regular office visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the we, we, we haven't even changed our coding now. I'm wondering if they may continue that. Uh, because it does require so much care, similar to an in-office visit, um, that, the, that they, may, um, they may continue to relax uh, that as well. Uh, and I, and that, I mean, I think I want to say it's a, at least a quarter of the states now uh, that have joined the new parity laws, so that it's, it's almost like an in-office visit. So that's something to look at as well, I think, when you're coding right
2: now. So one of the biggest things um, that is an issue is the parity. So the payers can sort of put some glitches in there to make you not get your your equal pay. But also right now, Medicare has changed the place of service so that you can bill as if you're in your office. Exactly. So um, the home site, the patient being at home, if you um as if they're at home and you're not in your office, there's a big deduction in that because they're not giving you a facility fee. Um, and so there, there can be some changes to what's been adjusted during this COVID time. It would really not give you that full payment because they're still giving you the payment for what your nurses are doing and everyone's doing in the office.
1: Right. Um, I think you'll also, oh, go ahead. I was just saying that, but in terms of coding, the coding ends up being very similar uh, to what you would code in your office, as yeah. opposed to-
2: For, all of for the- live. For, yeah, live. for the yeah. live,
0: yeah. Exactly. And the and tough were- thing is, Dr. Markowitz, you were saying, uh, you and I both practice hybrid teledermatology, where you store and forward photos with the live interactive. Right now, the parity is only, as you know, for the live interactive. So the additional review and the administrative task of reviewing those photos, storing those photos um, for store and forward is not included in that. And I think one of the things that we can advocate for in the future is to advocate for coverage and also payment parity for store and forward, which is not covered to the same extent as live interactive.
1: Agreed. And I, I think of it as honestly the way that dermoscopy is not covered. I kind of mentally think of it that way. And I say this is like my dermatoscope part of my visit. So it ends up just being part of the live visit. But it w- it's always nice to have coverage for all of the work that you're doing. And obviously, it's very high level work to do this storm forward. Um, so yeah, I agree.
2: And I've heard from some of the pediatric dermatology colleagues that they're expected to see the same number of patients in that time. And I said, you know, you can bill for the time you've spent, but there's no way. And especially if you want to be very efficient, you need a lot of administrative help to contact the patients, have the patients load the photos in, have the patients queued up for your next visit to go as fast as you can. Yeah. And busy. and that takes so much extra manpower, which yeah. is extra billing, that more cost. And so,
1: yeah, in New York, many of the staff are deployed, right, to be helping right. the front lines. So, in addition, and they they said it very clearly, the schedulers, they, I mean, it's basically they have tenfold workload. So the administrative is so much more in terms of setting up the visit, walking the patient through, reminding the patient. Right. It's all you. <laughs> oh, and then And then if you're lucky, you have a virtual waiting room. But if you don't have never available at the time of the visit, and here's your $40. Yeah. So there's, there's no, there's, I mean, I agree with you. The the volume, you couldn't possibly manage the same volume. Um, you need much more staff and the volume is substantially less. Um, but hopefully if there's proper reimbursement, you can certainly find a balance, especially as I, as I agree with Dr. Lee saying, the silver lining um, for many Patients it, it, like in New York in the wintertime, older patients they can't get out or the icy roads they're going to hurt themselves. So yep. having that option for them in the future is going to make a huge difference right. for these
0: patients. As we're all wearing different hats right now and trying to survive this, you know, this whole pandemic, we're wearing a lot of hats and we're functioning as tech support and as the schedulers. And I think the benefit of that is we're going to be much more empathetic in terms of how we want to to integrate this in the future um once we try to return to normal clinic scheduling and how do we build this into our workflow so it maximizes our efficiency and is not an administrative burden for our schedulers right. and i hopefully with all of this we will be able to offer better access for all of our patients yes right by open opening these digital doors, we can make better use of that in-office time for yes. either more complex patients or procedures. And so hopefully I think from a population level and a systems level, we'll, we'll benefit and make a lot of progress with this, this, you know, it's kind of exciting and experimenting times.